and remain standing. And let's go to the book of Hebrews this morning, chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. Today uh, we are studying the story of Elijah. We are in the middle of a series that we began in in, uh, the first Sunday of January called Foundation of Faith. And we're studying through this famous chapter, Hebrews 11. And uh, now we are picking certain characters of faith and we are learning from their example. Hebrews 11 and verse number 32 is where I'll read from. I'll just read one verse in Hebrews 11 and then we're going to go back in the Old Testament to the book of 1 Kings 18. We're going to be there uh, for the duration of the message. So Hebrews 11 and then 1 Kings 18 We'll pick up from there. But in verse number 32, the word of God says, And what shall I more say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and of Barak and of Samson and of Jephthah, of David also and Samuel, and then it says this, and of the prophets. Today we are going to study one of those prophets and his great faith, a man by the name of Elijah. Let's pray. Lord, we ask you today that you would once again meet with us here, speak to us through your word, and let us hear your voice this morning. I pray for the one here who has not received saving faith through your son Jesus, that today they would not waver any longer, but they would confess you as Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated today. This morning we will look at uh, one of the most beloved episodes from the story in life of Elijah. It's one of the most dramatic passages in all of the Old Testament. You have a battle between Jehovah, the true God, and the false god, Baal. Now let me give you a little bit of context uh, leading up to this story. Again, if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn back to 1 Kings chapter 18, and that's where we're going to spend most of our time this morning, 1 Kings 18. Um, But I want to provide a little context leading up to this story. Um, David was the king whom uh, God used, and the king that God promised the Messiah would come through his line. After David ruled as a king after God's own heart, his son Solomon took over. Solomon built the temple and established a permanent place of worship to the true God for the Israelites. He was known as the wisest man to ever live. After Solomon, however, the kingdom of Israel divides, it splits into two. There were a few glimmers of light, godly kings after that, but most was um, complete darkness in the nation. It seemed like progressively the kings became more and more wicked. We finally get to a a, a king by the name of Omri. Omri, not Omri, Omri. And Omri was an evil king. The Bible actually says that he did more evil than all the kings before him. Omri dies, but before he dies, he gives birth to a son named Ahab. And Ahab, the Bible says, was even more wicked Then Omri. Omri takes over. And we're told that Ahab did evil in the sight of the Lord above all before him. And to make matters worse, he married bad as well. His wife 
was probably more wicked than he was. Her name was Jezebel. She was a Gentile, non-Jewish woman and the daughter of a guy named Ethbaal, who was a priest of the false god Baal. This disastrous duo, Ahab and Jezebel, led Israel into full-fledged worship of Baal, the false god. Now, Baal, his name means Lord, and uh, we understand that's lowercase l, Lord, amen. We serve an uppercase g, God, right? The only true God. Well, Baal was the fertility God. It was believed that Baal enabled people to produce children and also to produce crops. Worship of Baal consisted of the most vile and immoral rituals that you can imagine, among which were sacrificing children. Friend, if Elijah can stand faithfully for God in the midst of such darkness and wickedness, we have no excuse today. Amen? No matter how wicked or desperate our world becomes, we can still be faithful to the Lord, and Elijah is an example of that. So, if God wasn't already provoked under the reign of King Omri, now, no doubt, he is filled with wrath as Ahab is king. But in chapter 17 of 1 Kings, in chapter 17, something changes. Ahab doesn't change, but God raises up a man to stand in the gap. When God's people seem to fall into sin, the Lord does not seek for some social change. He does not seek for an outward reformation through politics. He isn't looking for politicians or programs to fix his people. He raises up a man, a faithful man, led by the Spirit of God under the conviction of his word. He raises up a man of God to deliver the word of God to the people of God. A man who would not bow to the norms of culture, who would not bend to the pressures of society to be conformed to this world. A man who had the word of God in his heart and the fire of God in his soul. And he says to that man, I have raised you up for one reason, to remind my people that I am still God, that I am a jealous God, and I will not give my glory to another. Elijah was that man. Today we get to study his amazing faith. The very first thing that we see about Elijah's faith is this. Number one, faith can lead to uncomfortable places. Faith can lead to uncomfortable places. We really need this reminder today that the life of faith is not an easy life. Actually, the opposite is often true. Because we walk by faith, you may face difficulty that otherwise you would not. Jesus never said that the life of his followers would be a life of comfort. The faith of Elijah put him in a place of discomfort. He had to confront a wicked king. And God was going to ask Elijah to do something very uncomfortable. To stand before an ungodly king, to stand before ungodly priests, and to stand before an ungodly nation. Do you think he was comfortable doing those things? Do you think that he enjoyed being put in that difficult situation? I don't. Teddy Roosevelt said this, 
Never throughout history has a man who lived a life of ease left a name worth remembering. Elijah did not live a life of ease, and we remember his name today. Annie Johnson Flint wrote a hymn called God Hath Not Promise. In it, she wrote this, God hath not promised skies always blue, flower-strewn pathways all our lives through. God hath not promised sun without rain, joy without sorrow, peace without pain. God hath not promised smooth roads and wide, swift, easy travel needing no guide. Never a mountain rocky and steep, never a river turbid and deep. But God hath promised strength for the day, rest for the labor, light for the way, grace for the trials, help from above, unfailing sympathy, undying love. God has not promised a life of ease. And God has not called us to be comfortable. He has called us to be faithful. And church, sometimes when you are faithful, that will lead you to a place of discomfort. Elijah was a prophet of God. His name means, and please try to remember this, Elijah's name means, my God is the Lord. My God is the Lord. He was a Tishbite, the Bible says, from Gilead, but nothing is known of his family or his birth. It's as if he appears out of nowhere in the Old Testament. But the truth is this. It didn't matter who his mother or his father was. It didn't matter what his heritage or his lineage was. What mattered is that he was chosen by God to deliver a message of God to an ungodly king. And so Elijah burst onto the scene and immediately the first words out of his mouth is a message of judgment on Ahab. In 1 Kings 17, verse number 1, I know I told you verse chapter 18, we're going to get there in a second. But let me read verse 1 of chapter 17. It says this, And Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the inhabitants of Gilead, said unto Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel liveth, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. As soon as Elijah steps on the scene, he goes to Ahab and he says, There will be no rain there will be no dew upon the earth for years. Do you think that was comfortable for Elijah to do? To stand before the king who has already murdered the other prophets of the Lord? No. But his faith led him to a place of discomfort. He gives this prophecy, this judgment, and then God hides him. <laughs> he hides him. The Lord tells Elijah to hide. He says, now you want to run. <laughs> he does. He runs and, and he hides. For years he hides. And the Lord provides for him and protects him and keeps him hidden. You know that Ahab was trying to find him, but he couldn't. He told Elijah to hide himself, and then he tells Elijah, now it's time to make yourself known. Three years later, it had not rained for three years. Elijah comes back to Ahab, and because of the lack of rain, now there is a famine in the land. Now, you think everywhere he went when people saw Elijah, they thought, dude, come on, <laughs> we're struggling here. Is it going to rain anytime soon? And everyone's probably looking to Elijah as if it's his fault that this is going on. Can you, like, put in a word for us here? Send something. 
There's a famine in the land, Elijah. Don't you know that? Of course this was a place of discomfort. I want you to consider something. What a powerful statement from Jehovah that this was. Baal, supposedly the god of prosperity and fertility for crops by way of rain, a god that's supposed to control all that, can't make it rain. Now Elijah is out of hiding, and he shows himself to Ahab, and what's amazing to me is what Ahab says to Elijah. Notice this, 1 Kings 18 now, and down to verse 17. 1 Kings 18, 17. And it came to pass when Ahab saw Elijah, that Elijah said unto him, Art thou he that troubleth Israel? What? <laughs> Ahab has led Israel into Baal worship. Baal worship has provoked the wrath of God. Because the Lord has provoked a wrath, he stops the rain. Because the rain has stopped, a famine comes. And now, because of Ahab and Jezebel, they are leading, at this point, the most ungodly political campaign the nation of Israel has ever seen. They cut off, they killed the prophets of the Lord to stomp out true worship in Israel. And Ahab has the guts to look at the preacher and say to Elijah, you're the problem. You're the problem. <laughs> Can you imagine what Elijah thought? We don't have to imagine. He actually says what he thinks after this. We're going to get there in a second. Friend, this happens more often than we care to admit. Someone has sin in their heart, bitterness in their life. They aren't where they need to be spiritually. They aren't reading God's word as they should, praying as they should, serving as they should, fellowshipping with other believers as they should. They're becoming more and more cold to the things of God. They've grown lukewarm in their love for Christ. Their life might be a mess. Their finances might be a mess. They have a thousand other problems going on in their life, but they point at the preacher or the church because blaming the preacher is a good cover for disobedience. It's easy to project, even on the church, our own failures. We all want someone to blame for the issues in our life, and the church is an easy punching bag, and the man of God becomes an easy target. Sometimes, maybe as folks grow cold in their love and devotion for Christ, we look for someone to blame. And sometimes the church is the one that's blamed. Well, it's just I don't get the same feeling that I used to. I don't grow as much as I, I used to. I'm not as on fire as, as I used to be. And we look outward. Elijah said, Ahab, you need to look inward. <laughs> My pastor, Pastor Ryan Bevan, uh, he shared something on social media just this past week, and it was a really good challenge. There's a quote that said, do you want a live worship service at church? And then he gave a list of things that we need to do. Pray beforehand. Ask God to speak to you personally. Second, pray for your pastor and the other leaders in the service. I'll never forget one time there was a man who came to Pastor Ryan and he sat in his office and he said, I just don't get... Uh, much out of your messages anymore. I'm not growing like I used to, and I, I'm just, I don't feel the same when I hear you preach. I feel like it's just, you know, not as powerful as it used to be. 
And Pastor Ryan looked at him and he asked him this question. He said, when is the last time that you ever prayed for me on a Sunday morning before you came to church? And his silence gave the answer. Not in a long time. Pray for the pastor. Pray for the other leaders in the service. Greet your family, your church family, with enthusiasm. Listen to the song lyrics as you sing. We just sang a few moments ago, As the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs after you. I want you more than any other, so much more than anything. Is that the prayer of your heart this morning as you sang those words? Listen to the scripture as it's read. Expect the Holy Spirit to move in hearts and then respond to the Holy Spirit's challenges and convictions. Ahab had the nerve to look at the preacher and ask, are you the one causing all this trouble? When you are that deep in sin, you think everyone is the problem but yourself. Elijah responds to Ahab, and I love his boldness here. 1 Kings 18, now verse 18, he says, I have not troubled Israel, but thou and thy father's house, in that ye have forsaken the commandments of the Lord, and thou hast followed Balaam. It's not me, Ahab, it's you and your household. You did this. And then Elijah issues a challenge to Ahab. In verse 19, he says, Now therefore, let's settle this, in other words, once and for all. Now therefore, whose fault is this? Send and gather to me all Israel unto Mount Carmel and the prophets of Baal, 450, and the prophets of the grove, 400, which eat at Jezebel's table. Verse 20. So Ahab sent unto all the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together unto Mount Carmel. I don't think for a second that this was comfortable for Elijah to do. But faith can lead you to a place of discomfort. It's faith that keeps us serving the Lord even when things get uncomfortable. What kind of faith is it if you only serve Christ when you're comfortable? Faith can lead to a place of discomfort. Number two, the second thing we see is that faith calls for a decision. Faith calls for a decision. Look at verse 21 of our story. Elijah calls for a decision. It says, And Elijah came unto all the people and said, How long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people answered him not a word. Now look, Elijah was on the side of the Lord. The false prophets, they were on Baal's side. But it seemed like the people were sort of waffling between the two. Uh, They're riding the fence. Uh, They got one foot in the temple of Baal and one foot in the temple of the Lord. And it's like they've almost blended together the true worship with the false worship of Baal. And Elijah says, enough is enough. How long are you wavering between two opinions you have to pick a side maybe even today you came here this morning unsure of your salvation and you've been testing out Jesus a little bit and and you don't hate the guy but you're also not his follower and so you're riding the fence and and you're kind of got one foot in and one foot out and you think well this is good enough for right now friend Satan owns the fence God is calling us to make a decision. That's what faith does. 
And so Elijah challenges the Israelites, pick a side. If Jehovah is God, serve him. If Baal, if he's really God, then you ought to serve him. But stop riding the fence. It's reminiscent to me of Joshua's challenge to the Israelites. Remember back in the book of Joshua 24, verse 15, when he said to Israel, And if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom ye will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the flood, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land ye dwell. But as for me and my house, say it with me, church, we will serve the Lord. Joshua calls them to a decision. Choose you this day. I'm reminded even further back in the Old Testament when Moses went up on Mount Sinai and God gave him the two tables of stone. He wrote with his own finger the law of God. Moses traveled down the mountain only to discover the Israelites worshiping a golden what? Calf. So he broke the tablets, didn't he? Later, in Exodus 32, verse 26, this is what Moses said. Who is on the Lord's side? Who is on the Lord's side? Let him come unto me. Make a decision. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together unto him. At one point in time, because of their disobedience, Israel was taken captive by a wicked king named Nebuchadnezzar. Babylonian empire came in they stole away the Israelites and they hauled them off to a foreign land at one point Nebuchadnezzar built a golden statue 90 feet tall and he gave a command when you hear the music play bow down and worship the golden image and whoever does not bow down you will be cast into the fiery furnace Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of Israelites heard that music and without hesitation they fell upon their faces and began to worship. But there were three young men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who stood in defiance to what the king said. And the king found out about it and he was mad and he called them in. Hey, I'm going to give you a second chance. Maybe you didn't hear the instructions, but let me remind you, when you hear the music, you bow or you're going into the furnace. In Daniel chapter 3, verse 16, we find the response of these, the response of these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. In other words, we don't even have to discuss this. Verse number 17. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. Verse 18 says, but if not. You say, well, did they lack faith? Was this unbelief on their part? Not at all. This is a present reality that maybe it was God's will that they die in that fiery furnace. But friend, what takes greater faith? To believe that God will take you out of the fiery furnace or to go in knowing that he may not. But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. They made a choice. Faith calls for a decision. 
God draws a line in the sand and he says, are you with me or are you against me? Will you confess me or will you deny me? You must pick, choose, decide who is on the Lord's side. Now look, as we uh, initially choose Christ for salvation, that is a decision and the biggest decision that we can make. But after we put our faith in Christ, throughout our Christian life, as we walk by faith, opportunities will arise. Will we hide our faith or boldly proclaim Christ? Will we speak up for Jesus or will we remain silent? The world will give you plenty of opportunity to deny Jesus, but church, don't lose heart because every opportunity to deny Christ is also an opportunity to stand for him. Faith calls for a decision. Number three, next we see faith confronts error. Faith confronts error. You know what the ministry of Elijah was really all about? The ministry of Elijah is a story of confrontation. Most of us hate confrontation. I hate confrontation. But we are called at times in Scripture to confront. Sometimes confrontation is absolutely necessary. Elijah had such a love for the truth that he confronted error. He confronted Ahab, he confronted Jezebel, he confronted the Israelites, and he confronted the prophets and priests of Baal. A preacher once made the remark that a dog barks when his master is attacked. I would be a coward if I saw God's truth attacked and yet remained silent. The world wants compromise. God calls for confrontation. You see, today, there's a different ministry that has taken the place of confrontation in the church, and that's the ministry of accommodation we accommodate everyone and everything and every belief in the name of love at the expense of truth. Francis Schaeffer said, here is the great evangelical disaster, the failure of the evangelical world to stand for truth as truth. There is only one word for this, accommodation. The evangelical church has accommodated to the world spirit of the age. Truth carries with it confrontation. Truth demands confrontation, loving confrontation, but confrontation nevertheless. If our only reflex is always accommodation, regardless of the truth involved, there is something wrong. For far too long, the church has accommodated false religion, false teaching, and false prophets. There is way too much tolerance for false religion among Christianity. Christians have far too much reverence for false gods, fake gods like Baal. And I'm not talking about being intolerant to people or being unkind in any way. But when it comes to false teaching and false teachers, we are to have zero tolerance. We're actually called to confront it. Ephesians 5 verse 11 says this, Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. That means expose those works, those teachings of darkness. Part of speaking the truth involves exposing lies. It's been said tolerance toward people is a good and biblical virtue. 
but tolerance toward false teaching is a sin. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 7, 15, beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. In many churches today, pastors are busy petting the wolves while the sheep are in their teeth. Now, we may not be bowing down to Baal and to Ashtaroth or worshiping golden calves and kneeling before golden statues, but the number of idols that have wrapped their hands around the hearts of believers and unbelievers alike are more today than we could ever calculate. The gods of humanism, of hedonism, the gods of sexuality, the gods of entertainment and power and prestige and fame and money. Faith confronts error. Vance Habner said, the early Christians condemned false doctrine in a way that sounds almost unchristian today. Oh, Apostle Paul. It's not what you said, Paul. It's how you said it. Peter, 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 Peter. Look, the Pharisees, they mean well <laughs> as they're trying to stone them to death, right? Pull it back a little bit. It's a little too much. You know what the greatest sin today in the modern evangelical world that you can commit is? That you're not nice. Throw truth out the window so long as you're nice. <laughs> as we walk through the story of Elijah, this story of confrontation with Ahab, you're going to realize really quick, Elijah would be kicked out of most Christian circles today. <laughs> Let's walk through this story. In verse number 22 of 1 Kings 18, watch how Elijah confronts error. Verse 22, then said Elijah unto the people, I, even I only remain a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. All right. One Elijah, 450 prophets of Baal, and 400 prophets of Ashtaroth. We learn about them later. So 850 to one. Now here's the competition. Verse number 23. Let them, therefore, give us two bullocks, let them choose one bullock for themselves, cut it in pieces, lay it on the wood, put no fire under. I will dress the other bullock, lay it on wood, put no fire under. Verse 24. And call ye on the name of your gods, and I will call on the name of the Lord, and the God that answereth by fire, let him be God. And all the people answered and said, it is well spoken. Little competition. Two bulls. We both make an altar. You take your wood. I'll take my wood. We cut it up. We lay it on the altar. We don't put any fire underneath. We're going to pray. Whichever God answers by fire, that's the true God. What do you think? And the people say, that's a good idea. <laughs> Let's do that. That's, that sounds like a fair competition. So Elijah defers to the prophets of Baal first. In verse number 25, it said, And Elijah said unto the prophets of Baal, Choose you one bullock for yourselves, and dress it first, for ye are many. Call on the name of your gods, but put no fire under. Verse 26, and they took the bullock, which was given them. They dressed it and called on the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, hear us. But there was no voice, nor any that answered. And they leaped upon the altar which was made. The prophets of Baal go first. They start early in the morning all the way until noon. For hours they have been crying out 
Oh, Baal, hear us. But no response. Elijah at noon. <laughs> I think it's funny what Elijah says. Maybe you are, oh, that's offensive. All right, look at verse 27. And it came to pass at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he is talking or he is pursuing or he is in a journey or peradventure he sleepeth and must be awaked. Elijah begins mocking them. Now, I heard a, a preacher say this, this is actually an excuse for us to be sarcastic when we debate with people, and uh, I don't know if I believe that, all right? Speak the truth in love, amen? Uh, but Elijah just seems to be speaking the truth here. It's interesting when you study out what Elijah says that Baal, he gives the options. Here's what Baal might be doing during this time. When it says that he is pursuing, all right, uh, some take that as he's, he's traveling, all right? He's going after something. Uh, but there are some commentators who actually in, interpret that um, and translate that, and uh, it's just kind of funny, but that he is using the bathroom. That that's what the original, <laughs> that he was using the bathroom. And uh, so he's on, he's, he's on the toilet somewhere, and... Uh, that's just, uh, study that out. You, you can find that. Some commentators believe that's what he was saying. And then others say that pursuing means he was in deep thought, uh, which is really kind of the same thing when you think about it. Uh, but he's pursuing, that's what it says. Or he's on a journey. He sarcastically says he's talking, he's busy, he's traveling, or he's sleeping. Yell a little bit louder, and maybe you can wake him up. Verse 28, they yell louder. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their manner with knives and lancets till the blood gushed out upon them. Can you imagine this frantic scene? 450 screaming, sweating, exhausted prophets now cutting themselves. Blood gushing upon the ground, upon the sacrifice, upon themselves. In a complete and utter frenzy, they are begging their God to answer, but there is no response. As I read through this story, I'm in the middle of reading a, a book, an autobiography by a man, or about and by a man named John Payton. He's a Scotland missionary back in the 1800s. He went to these cannibalistic islands in the South Seas. Um, when you read this book, and I would recommend it to anyone who interested in something like that every chapter someone is trying to kill him whether it's the land that he's living in or the people who are there they're trying to kill him or eat him and it just the chapter ends with and god protected me and then the next chapter starts um a man of tremendous faith his wife died his child died he continued. He stayed. While he was there, ministering, preaching, witnessing, um, there were some superstitions that the islanders had. On one particular day, he was teaching a service. He was talking about the true God, Jehovah God, and there were three men present. They were sacred men in the village. They were feared by the population because they, they professed to be sorcerers. They claimed that they had the power of life and death, of health and sickness, rain and drought, 
according to their will. When they heard John Payton preach, they stood up and said, we don't believe in Jehovah, we don't need his help. And they said that they had the power to kill John Payton by the power of Nahak. Nahak meaning sorcery or witchcraft. The way that they would supposedly do this is they would find a, a, a spare leftover piece of food, a scrap that you left behind. And if they had that piece of food, they could use it in their black magic and somehow pronounce a curse upon you and you would die. That's why the islanders would never leave behind a scrap of food, whether it was a banana or an orange peel or any remaining piece of food. They would always gather it up because they were afraid one of these sacred men would get a hold of it and they would have the power to kill him. John Payton, standing near a bunch of uh, fruit that a woman was holding, asked, can I have some? And the woman said, yes. He took three pieces of fruit. As I'm studying out the story of Elijah, I'm reading this book, and I can't help but see some parallel here. He takes the, the fruit in front of everyone. He takes a bite of each piece of fruit. He gives it to the three men and dares them by the power of Nahak to kill him. The islanders, in terror, said, no, 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 what are you doing? Again, even though they would listen, some of them were even friends with the missionary, but none of them were believers at this point. And so the men took the fruit. The challenge was accepted. He said, I deny that your gods have any power against me or against anyone by your sorcery. So they took his fruit. The islanders fled in terror. They ran away. They called out to the missionary. They called him Misi, Misi, Misi. Come on, Misi. And he wouldn't come. He said, I stood there and watched them. They took his fruit. They wrapped it up from the leaf of a sacred tree. They began to perform the ceremony. They wrapped it into what was like a wax candle. They began to burn it and wave it around their head and breathe upon it and, and dance around and pray to their gods. And then they would look suddenly at John Payton, expecting him to just drop down dead. But he didn't. And so they said, we need more. <laughs> so what they did is they called all of the sorcerers from around the island, and he said, they said, by this time on your next Sabbath day, you will be dead. Every day they would blow a conch shell to summon all of the sorcerers together, and every day they met and prayed and practiced their witchcraft to try and kill John Payton. When the Sabbath day had finally come, he said that he appeared and felt more in strength than his usual health. He gathered the people in the village as they looked at each other in terror as if it really couldn't be him. Entering into the public ground, he said he saluted them with this, My love to you all, my friends. I have come again to talk to you about the Jehovah God and his worship. The three men were asked, what happened? Why didn't you kill him? Their excuse, he's also a sacred man. And his God appears to be stronger than our gods. John Payton said, yea, truly, my Jehovah God is stronger than your gods. He protected me and helped me, for he is the only living and true God, the only God that can hear and answer any prayer from the children of men. Your gods cannot hear prayers, but my God can and will and will answer you if you will give him your heart and your life and your love. This is my God. 
and he will be your friend if you will hear and follow his voice. John Payton said, your God's will not hear. What a man of faith. Elijah stood before these prophets of Baal, and I cannot help but think about John Payton when he says, your gods cannot hear you, for they are no gods. In verse number 30, we have a completely different scene. It says, And Elijah said unto all the people, Come near unto me. And all the people came near unto him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. Elijah takes 12 stones, like the 12 tribes of Israel. He repairs the altar. He takes the wood. He lays it upon the altar. He prepares the sacrifice. And then he does something very strange. The Bible says that he dug a trench around the altar. Verse number 33, it says, And he put the wood in order and cut the bullock in pieces, laid him on the wood, and said, Fill four barrels with water. Pour it on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. They're probably like, what? Verse 34, and he said, do it the second time. They did it the second time. He said, do it the third time. And they did it the third time. Verse 35, and the water ran round about the altar, and he filled the trench also with water. I want you to consider something. It still hasn't rained. It's in the middle of a famine. Water was a precious commodity. And he takes all these barrels of water, 12 in number, and he pours it all over the wood, all over the sacrifice, all over the stones, and then makes a trench and fills it with water. Why? He doesn't want anyone to doubt what was about to happen. Now Elijah's prayer, verse 36, And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel, let it be known this day that thou art God in Israel, and that I am thy servant, and that I have done all these things at thy word. Verse 37 says, Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that thou art the Lord God, and that thou hast turned their heart back again. Do you see his motive here? Much like David's from last week, that this people may know that thou art the Lord. Friend, there is no greater cause on earth than that, that all the earth may know that there is a God. Know Christ and make him known. Israel had forgotten that great truth, but they were about to remember. Verse number 38, it says this, Then the prophets of Baal from morning until the evening sacrifice, that was about 3 p.m., from morning until evening, six, seven, eight hours they've been at this, not even a whisper from Baal. Elijah prays, and in two verses, <laughs> it says then, the fire of the Lord fell and consume the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. Friend, the only fire that can do that is fire from the Lord. Here's the truth. Elijah would have never seen this victory if he had not been willing to confront the false worship of Baal. That's what faith does. Faith confronts error. Lastly, and I'll be done, number four, faith 
challenges the faith of others. Faith challenges the faith of others. Have you ever experienced this in your life? Where you have seen a believer, you have seen them walking by faith and not by sight, and their faith does something in your heart to stir you up to serve the Lord. That's what faith does. It's contagious. Faith challenges the faith of others. Verse 39, it says this, And when all the people saw it, what is their response? They fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. I mentioned earlier that I wanted you to remember what the name of Elijah meant. What does it mean? The Lord, He is God. Do you understand what they're doing? They are crying out His name. Elijah, the Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. When that fire fell down, it burnt up the altar, the water, the sacrifice, the wood, and the unbelief of the people. Faith is contagious. The sacrifice is gone, but the prophets of Baal were still there. Now, Elijah is going to put their faith to the test. Remember, James says, you can talk about your faith, or you can show me your faith by your works. Well, they said it, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. Now, Elijah is about to give them a chance to prove their faith. Elijah was committed to the covenant of the Lord. The law stated false prophets were commanded to be put to death. Now one man among millions had the courage and the commitment and the faith to the truth to stand. One man had the faith to stand against these false prophets, but the faith of that one man challenged an entire nation. In verse number 40, here's what it says. And Elijah said unto them, who's them? Those are the people who have seen this, who have seen the prayer and the faith of Elijah. He says to them, take the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they took them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slew them there. They proved their faith by their obedience to the Lord. These prophets are extinguished. Elijah, now he's not alone. He truly never was. Even though it was one versus 850, God plus one is always the majority. Amen? Lord, give us the type of faith that Elijah had. I read a story years and years ago about a young man from Rwanda he was forced by his tribe back in the early 1980s to renounce Christ or face death. He refused to renounce Jesus. He was murdered on the spot. The following commitment was found in his room after he died. It's the moving testimony of a martyr. The author's name is anonymous to us. It's only known to Jesus. He wrote, I am a part of the fellowship of the unashamed. I have the Holy Spirit power. The die has been cast. I have stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I'm a disciple of his. I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. 
My past is redeemed. My present makes sense. My future is secure. I'm finished and done with low living, sight walking, smooth knees, colorless dreams, tamed visions, worldly talking, cheap giving, and dwarfed goals. I need no longer preeminence, prosperity, position, promotions, plaudits, or popularity. I don't have to be right, first, tops, recognized, praised, regarded, or rewarded. I now live by faith, lean in his presence, walk by his patience, am uplifted by prayer, and I labor with power. My face is set, my gate is fast, my goal is heaven, my road is narrow, my way rough, my companions are few, but my guide reliable, my mission clear. I cannot be bought, compromised, detoured, lured away, turned back, deluded, or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice, hesitate in the presence of the enemy, pander at the pool of popularity, or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I won't give up, shut up, let up, until I have stayed up, stored up, prayed up, paid up, preached up for the cause of Christ. I am a disciple of Jesus. I must go till he comes, give till I drop, preach till all know, and work till he stops me. And when he comes for his own, he will have no problem recognizing me. My banner will be clear. That's the type of man God was looking for during the time of Ahab. And Elijah the prophet was that man. May God give us the spirit of Elijah. Would you stand with me this morning? As you stand, if you would bow with me for just a few moments. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Faith can lead us to uncomfortable places. Faith, at times, calls for a decision. Maybe you're here today, and you were here last Sunday. You have yet to put your faith in Christ. You're riding the fence. God has drawn a line in the sand, and he says to you this morning, Will you deny me or confess me? If you are not on my side, you are against me. Today, maybe you need to make that initial decision of salvation. Christian, is there maybe something in your life right now that the Lord has given you an opportunity to stand for him, to boldly proclaim Christ? Will you stand? Will you speak? Or will you remain silent? Faith confronts error. And it challenges the faith of others. I ask you, when, when Christians look at your life, do you have the type of faith that stirs up the spirit of others? Maybe this morning you want to come and ask the Lord to give you the faith of Elijah. God can use one. He can use one to change a nation. And friend, he can use you to change your family or change your school or to change your job. The Lord can use your faith. The same God that answered Elijah is the God that we pray to today. He's not asleep. He's not away. We don't have to speak any louder. He hears you this morning. Will we have that faith? Lord, thank you for your grace and mercy in calling us to serve you. I pray now, Lord, as we reflect on a life of faith that was lived by Elijah, God, that would stir up our spirits today 
we would be the people of God with the word of God in our hearts on fire with your spirit. God, that you would use our faith to challenge others. We ask in Christ's name, amen.